Welcome to Weird Sisters, a Discworld reread podcast. My name is Manning. And I'm Danny. And we are here to talk about The Color of Magic, the first book in the Discworld series. I guess I'll start with a little bit of my personal history with Discworld. I've been a fan ever since a good friend of mine, Cadence, she loaned me this very book back when we were both in high school. Hopefully we'll be able to get Cadence on this podcast someday. I've just fell in love with the series basically from first read, and I've amassed a dragon's horde of the books. And Danny, what is your history with Discworld? I am actually pretty darn new to the series. As far as reading them, Color of Magic is my first book. Actually, for this podcast, I started reading it. Uh, However, I have had a history with Terry Pratchett's books in the form of Good Omens, as well as the Color of Magic movie, which I haven't, I still have yet to decide how accurate that is, considering it was a long time ago that I saw it. (laughs) We may end up watching that for some sort of bonus episode way down the line, if this whole thing works out. That that would be a lot of fun, actually. (laughs) I'll probably tear it to shreds. I suppose we'll dive right into it with the plot synopsis from the secret third sister who hides out in the gaming den of the gods. She's wonderful. Yes. The Color of Magic, the first of Discworld's many novels, provides a swift, punchy introduction to Terry Pratchett's universe. It details the journey of Rincewind, the disc's worst wizard, and Twoflower, a wide-eyed tourist from beyond the seas. These two men stumble through a series of small, episodic adventures, featuring bar fights, angry dryads, imaginary-slash-not-imaginary dragons, a vengeful magic god, and a journey to the end of the planet. All the while, they are watched by the disc's deities, who view the characters' movements as literal pieces in a cosmic game of Sorta Chess. This entry's conclusion features the illustrious duo as they stumble face-first into a space expedition to identify the great space turtle Atwin's sex, and ends with a cliffhanger of them falling into the void. Spoilers, I guess. I should put up front that we will be spoiling each book in the series, so we would encourage everyone to read them. But you could probably skip The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic if it's that important to you, but you should come back to them eventually. So Danny, what did you think of the book? I I really enjoyed it. I have been told that the chapter breakup, the mini stories within the book, aren't, what's the word, typical for the rest of the series. However, I did kind of like that format. It made it easy to put down for a little while and then go do something and come back, even though after a while I didn't, I didn't want to put it down. I enjoyed the characters a lot. The Rincewind's pessimism was hilarious, especially alongside Two Flowers' just obliviousness to the dangers of uh, of the disc. They're very much, for lack of a better uh, dynamic, or a more hashtag relatable dynamic, kind of a Spongebob and Squidward a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can see that. One thing that I want to say, while Rincewind is not really the best character, uh, best protagonist that Discworld has, he's certainly the one that I think he, uh, Discworld needed to start with. 
you wouldn't have the same tone if you had started with somebody f- competent, basically. Makes an effective um, satirization of fantasy protagonists. Some of the much more interesting characters, like Susan Stohelet, who's one of my personal favorites, they are exciting because they shape the uh, and react to the world around them. Rincewind is entirely reactionary, both in the world of the Discworld and in the fantasy genre, as just the worst wizard ever. It makes him a little, a little bit, I guess, relatable. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. And Two Flower is such a delight. He probably wouldn't be as much of one if he wasn't paired with Rincewind, who I'm, whose name I'm actually pretty certain that I'm mispronouncing. Yeah, I think Two Flower is. He's more relatable in the uh, the modern sense of just, I want to go out and do a thing, damn the consequences. Absolutely. Although, I don't disagree. Although I feel that he just doesn't understand that there can be consequences to his adventure. <laughs> he's he's on a cruise or just like a, a fantastical guided tour. Nothing can go wrong. This is safari. Absolutely. The lions don't jump into your car. <laughs> That would be rude of them. (laughs) (laughs) So, I guess um, let's get into some trivia about The Color of Magic. So, originally published in 1983, it's a broad parody of a lot of different aspects of the fantasy genre. Uh, Starting with the uh, adventurer's Bravd and the Weasel, who are a direct parody of, uh, God, why uh, these fantasy authors always have to give their characters such awkward names, Fahrd <laughs> and the Grey Mouser, the main characters of a series by celebrated fantasy author Fritz Lieber. Notably, Lieber is the one who coined the term swords and sorcery as a subgenre of fantasy. The earliest Discworld books are more about satirizing specific works of fiction, which uh, leads to them establishing a specific setting that becomes a basis for much more broad uh, parody and satire. I also picked up on that, um, not with the example of Bravd and the Weasel, but later on in the book with the the Lore of the Worm chapter, mm, yeah. which was uh, quite... It was familiar to me in that I read the first chapter of Dragon Riders of Pern probably three or four times. It's still on my reading list. But the the way they had that chapter set up was very similar to that that series um, from what I've seen of it. Absolutely. Although we focused on these two characters, uh, Rincewind and Twoflower, but there's the third member of their party who deserves special mention. The Luggage, who starts off as sort of just a vaguely malevolent piece of set dressing more than anything. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But I think The Luggage develops by the end of the book into what will be their, its role throughout the rest of the stories that it appears heavily in, which is it is a force of nature more than anything. Hmm. I look forward to that, honestly. The luggage... I wasn't expecting an inanimate object to just make itself make a place in my heart so quickly, but it 
did. And I don't know, it it come it came off as cute to me. Just it's a suitcase full of teeth. But it's adorable. Teeth, 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 teeth. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of lore introduced in this first book that is functionally abandoned in the rest of the series, including the first footnote of the series, which describes the eight seasons of the year. While the holidays it mentions do come back later, I don't think anyone ever mentions Winter Secundus during the events of Wintersmith. It's possible I missed something in a later book, in which case I'm sure that the comments will let me know. <laughs> Fundamentally, I think that Terry Pratchett either just forgot about the extra seasons, or felt that it wasn't actually that important and wouldn't impact the lives of anyone living on the disc yeah i i suppose it's something similar to like the something for the hardcore fans to think about like all of like in lord of the rings all of the different meals the hobbits have it's mentioned once and then only brought up again when they're hungry i mean i too would be thinking about like all 17 meals that i would have if i was a hobbit if i was like on an extended walking road trip just as I think on the disc, the the people who live there think about the seasons more often than the readers. Because it's just, it's more background. And in this one's setting, setting wasn't exactly as much of a character as I've seen in other works. It was just kind of there. As a nice flavor in the background, just, it was the background. I feel like this this story was more more character driven rather than a work of literature where you have to analyze every little thing. And as much as I do love analysis... Sometimes you just want something simple. Absolutely. And I think that Terry Pratchett assumed that this was going to be a very simple series when he started writing this. Like, this book uh, he wrote before Good Omens and everything. And while I was going through it, I came to the realization that you you just have to go with it. So many things don't make sense. So many things get just the barest hint of, uh, hint of explanation. And I think that's... I think that's good, honestly, considering who we're following. Yes, we're following Two Flower, who's new to the whole world, and, like, he's he's exploring every little thing. But Rincewind is just so reluctant. He's not super eager to give all the exposition that we'd want of of the world. And so we just kind of have to accept things as they are. Although he does give some amount of exposition, he mentions, he more thinks to himself in the story about the different races that populate the world at this point, which are directly conflicted in the rest of the series. I may change my opinion later on as we go into more books, but for, for now, just from what I've been hearing from you and from the others, I think that it's perfectly fine that things get contradicted later on. It's it's a silly little world that does silly little things. If it tried to adhere strictly to certain rules, it would it would lose some of its charm. Although I may I tend to be a stickler for rules, so I may change my opinion later once things do get contradicted, but if it builds the world up better, then I think it'll be fine. Well, as the saying goes with Discworld, there are no continuity errors in the Discworld series. There are simply alternate pasts. You know, I like that. I like that a lot. That's... I hadn't thought about it like that. That's really good. Yeah, that's direct from Terry Pratchett. So. <laughs> of course it's good. <laughs> a lot of the things I've been uh, I've been reading that I've been listening to have used just kind of a dry, sarcastic humor. So I'm I'm a little I'm a little too uh, eager to laugh at things like that now, just because it's what I'm used to. So other trivia: we've already mentioned that this book was adapted into 
a TV movie along with its direct sequel, The Light Fantastic, starring David Jason, a man with two first names, playing Rincewind, and Sean Austin as Two Flower. Yes, Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings. Or Hercules in the first Kingdom Hearts series, if you follow that. If there is a human alive who could follow the Kingdom Hearts series. <laughs> I try. <laughs> it's not working, <laughs> but I'm trying. Christopher Lee also voices death in that adaptation. And I guess that's a, as good a segue as we're going to get to talking about the introduction of death in the series, in this book. What do you think of, of the Grim Reaper here? God, I love the Grim Reaper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you love him now? Just wait. Oh, oh, I can't wait. Like, I'm just a fan of uh, humanization. Uh, I forget the Anthropomorphic word. Anthropomorphic personifications. Um, that, yes. Um, I, I just like it when people do that in general, like, say, for the seasons or death, life, mostly death. Ooh. Um, but just there's so much there's so much going on that's just um death gets some lore built up in the color of magic again i don't know if that's going to be contradicted later on um it's tough to say what's what is going to be contradicted and what's character development but suffice to say that the death that we see the death who hands somebody a match to burn down his own inn for the for uh, insurance money it's not quite the <laughs> same death who takes over the role of Santa Claus <laughs> oh yes yeah, we'll get to that that's... oh wonderful um, but yeah that that was probably my favorite part like just aside from the whole uh, appearance of death in general is that it has it they death has a very unique voice yes in both the literal and figurative sense uh it's death is types in all caps um Uh, not just all in all caps all caps without quotation marks to indicate that death is not actually speaking uh death is sort of thinking hard enough at you that you can hear it (laughs) oh i wish i could do that i know right (laughs) <laughs> I might actually win some arguments against people I know. <laughs> oh, just returning to trivia for uh, a moment. Uh, the TV adaptation was not the only way that the, the Color of Magic was adapted. It was also turned into a text adventure game in 1986 by Delta 4 and released by Piranha, a Macmillan subsidiary in Amstrad slash CDC Commodore and Spectrum formats, according to Wikipedia. Where... Where can I find that? I ca- I want to see what it looks like now. Where can I find that? Will it will it run on DOSBox? I mean, I hope so. We're not advertising here, but possibly like Commodore. I think is even earlier than DOS. We may have oh, to fun. figure out some sort of way to get that together. I bet you we could look it up on YouTube. I can and will find a way to play it. I would be so down to playing that with you. Now, somebody going to let us know that it's actually terrible. Oh yeah, true. I'd say there's a certain kind of fun in in your hopes getting let down by a video game, but that's probably just because I have really bad taste in video games. (laughs) I just want to go over a little bit more of the book, point by point. Sure, yeah. We start off in 
Ankh-Morpork, or just outside of it, as Rincewind tells Bravd and the Weasel about meeting Two-Flower and everything. And Two-Flower arrived in Ankh-Morpork from the Agatian Empire, the wealthiest nation on the planet. Later books will expand on the empire more, giving it a specifically East Asian identity. But here the most important part is that it has lots of gold. Two-Flower explains that he works as an insurance clerk, referencing a word that is translated as reflected sound as if of underground spirits, which took me entirely too long to understand meant economics. I had to actually look that up. I didn't... I, it would have made sense if I had read continued reading, but I just... I'm the kind of person who, when I don't understand something, has to stop, find out what it is, and then move on. I, I'm makes me pretty good at puzzles, but not <laughs> the best reader, so... It, w- it was a dumb moment when I finally had to... Have somebody else explain it to me. The next chapter, The Sending of Eight, is more of a parody of Lovecraft with the eldritch abomination. The one whose name or number we're not allowed to say. Whom they defeat by taking its photo with the flash on, blinding it, and sending it off in a sulk. Relatable. On the way, they pick up an ally, Hrun the Barbarian. Actually, I don't think I'm getting enough, like, rolling in there. Let me try that again. Run. How's that? <laughs> um, a little grating on the ears, but better? Fair enough. So, Run sticks with them into the next chapter, The Lure of the Worm, which was the one you most enjoyed. Yes, the Dragon Riders of Pern spoof. And this is actually a rare instance of the first novel keeping in continuity with the rest of the series because it references the distinction between Draconis Nobilis, which is largely imagined on Discworld. It also does mention Draconis Vulgaris, which is a tiny swamp dragon that is the primary cause that Lady Sybil Ramkin fights for in the Watch subseries. So Hrun ends up going native, shall we say, with the Dragon Riders. And so Two Flower and Rincewind are on their own for the fourth chapter in the book, Close to the Edge. Actually, before we move on from that, I should have forgotten. One of the things that I vaguely remembered from the first time I read this, but it was still kind of strange to encounter in the actual story, Rincewind trying to imagine a dragon, not really believing in dragons, but like so desperate to not be falling out of the sky just shifts himself and Two Flower and the luggage into a facsimile of our world, which I thought was just a very strange and honestly not entirely necessary digression, but still really enjoyable. It was jarring, to say the least, as a new reader, and if I didn't already have the just go with it, it's just gonna happen, just let it happen mentality... I would have at this point, because all of a sudden they're going from falling through the sky to falling into an airplane. Like, one of those, one of the scenes where they change the background while the characters are still moving, so they just transition from one place into another. And it was weird. I don't think that this sort of thing happens again elsewhere in the series. There might be some, like, vague references to us. It does become central to the side series, Science of Discworld, which is actually a quite good series if you have only picked up the main books. I recommend giving it a read sometime. I think I think I will. If we don't cover it later on, I think I will. Yeah, yeah we'll figure it out. 
The last section of The Color of Magic basically concerns Two Flower and Rincewind being stranded on the Circle Ocean, taken in as slaves via the Circumfence, which is another example of Terry Pratchett's love of puns. They are being made sacrifices because fate, who's been trying to kill them indirectly throughout all of this adventure, has declared it so. They are brought to the city of Krull via hydrophobe disc, which is... <laughs> oh my god, that... Oh, <laughs> that... That... I have feelings about that. Share those feelings. Um, okay. Hydrophobe... The hydro... I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the a fact dumb... that it... It's so dumb, it's amazing. The fact that it exists is just an affront to me because I don't know I'm I'm a fan of biology and it is a fact of biology that people and animals and pretty much everything have some component of water into them and yet this disc this thing is held aloft over the sea by the sheer force of hating water so much like even denying the water in your body it just is astounding, and I have feelings about it, but at the same time, I, I, I can't help but laugh. It's so ridiculous. That's really the best attitude to take. Yeah. But, uh, in the end, Rincewind and Two Flower basically get an opportunity to escape thanks to, uh, functionally Lady Luck, which they take and used to get off of the disc and that's the end definitely dead forever certainly they're not gonna appear ever ever again bye bye so i think that's about everything that we wanted to cover in this first episode we'll probably think of something and bring that up in the next one but overall i'm so excited to be going on this journey with you danny Oh, I had a lot of fun too, so yeah. please, invite me on more adventures. <laughs> oh yeah, there, there's 40 books in this series. This is going to be years. But I think we're about ready to wrap up. Are there any other thoughts that you wanted to share? Not off the top of my head. I feel like a lot of things will will come out in later books, and keeping keeping my whole fresh to the series mentality is... I don't know, I'll try to avoid spoilers. It it should be easy, considering they're not new releases, but I'll continue as I go. It be how it be. I don't know, maybe I'll maybe I'll look look more heavily into the character interactions as I read later on, and I don't know, f- see if I can contribute a little bit more than just reactionary things. I mean, I think you're doing great, but I think that's all the time we have. So thank you so much for joining us here on Weird Sisters. Check your local library for the next book in the series, The Light, Fantastic. For more of the show, search us online, Weird Sisters Podcast. That's W-Y-R-D. Thank you to Willow Carter for our theme song. And thank you for listening. Until next time, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.